beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have traveled a long way since last New Year's Eve. We've traveled 940 million kilometers as we have made a full circuit around the sun at 107,000 kilometers per hour. We've traveled a long way. And a lot has happened. Happy things and hard things. Painful things and joyful things. And on New Year's Eve, it's a good time, isn't it, to focus and to take stock and to reorient and to ask ourselves, what is life all about? Where have we come from? Where are we? Where are we going? What is to be our focus in this new year? And so we turn this evening to Hebrews chapter 12, and the focus just jumps right out at us, doesn't it? In verse 2, looking to Jesus. That's a good focus. Looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus. But as we look at the two verses that make up our text, it's not just about looking to Jesus, but there's talks, there's talk about clouds of witnesses and, and running and perfecting and founding faith and, and the throne of God. And what does that all have to do with each other? What does this all mean? Well, to understand chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we have to go back and do a quick recap of what has happened in the preceding 11 chapters. Hebrews is called Hebrews for a reason, because it was written to Jewish Christians, Hebrew Christians, most likely in the area of Rome. And the Jewish Christians at first had a little bit of an edge or a privilege or an advantage over the Gentile Christians when it came to persecution. Because Judaism, the Jewish faith, was, had some pretty significant protections in the Roman Empire. The Jews were allowed to do their own thing, and they weren't obliged to do the sacrifices to the emperor and things like that. In many times, in many places in the Roman Empire, at first, the Christians were considered to just be some other type of Jew, because many of the, the first Christians were, of course, Jewish. And so they were kind of covered by that protection that the Jews had by the, from the Romans. But as the Romans began to distinguish that Christians actually were another faith, it was another group different than the Jews, then they began to be persecuted. And the Gentile Christians, of course, would be persecuted more because they, didn't, they weren't obviously Jewish and they didn't have that protection that the Jews had. So we, we get a little picture of that if you look at chapter 10, verse 32, when the apostle says, Recall the former days when after, after you were enlightened, when you came to, to believe, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So these Jewish Christians, their, 
Gentile brothers and sisters had received the brunt of the persecution and they had stepped up and they had been there for their brothers and sisters even though it had cost them significantly in the first wave of persecution. They had done well. But now things are getting worse. And now, even for Jewish Christians, the vice is tightening. And now they're in a situation where to confess Christ, to live as a Christian, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, is to be a magnet for reproach and shame and affliction and persecution. And there's this massive temptation right now for the Jewish Christians. And that temptation is to find refuge in the Old Testament Jewish religion, to go back to the synagogue, to just outwardly conform to the Jewish religion, because then the Romans will leave me alone. I know the Messiah has come. I know Jesus is my Savior. I know he died on the cross. But I'm just going to take cover and find refuge in the old covenant forms, because then I won't get persecuted. And the whole book of Hebrews is basically a written-down sermon, and there are reasons for that in the language of the book that I don't have time to get into right now, but I, I do believe that it's a sermon that was written down. And one of the clues is that it takes about 45 minutes to read, which is about a sermon length. So it's a written sermon, it's written down, and, and it's, it's written to these Jews who are facing this temptation. Over the years, over the centuries, many people have said that it was written by the Apostle Paul, and there are good reasons for that, and it is a possibility. And what this book is telling the Jewish Christians is this, you can't go back. Remember from the sermon on Galatians The caterpillar goes into the cocoon, and after a while, the caterpillar comes out of the cocoon as a butterfly, and it can't go back, because if you try to stuff the butterfly back into the cocoon, you just get broken wings and butterfly guts. It's ugly. It doesn't work. You can't go back. That's what Hebrews is saying. You can't go back to the old forms. The whole book describes the fulfillment of the Old Testament in Christ. The copies, the shadows, the foreshadowings, they all fall away. Because now we have the real thing. Now Christ is here. And he's done the one for all sacrifice, which opens up the way. And so the climax of this book is there in Hebrews 10 verse 19. Christ has fulfilled all of the Old Testament ceremonies and, and, and foreshadowings, and he's opened the way back to the Father. He's paid the price. He's brought the sacrifice for the first time since the fall. Human beings can come back into the presence of God and, and stay in the very presence of the Holy One in the Holy of Holies. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Sin has been paid for. We can come back home to the Father. And that's why, in view of that, in chapter 10, verse 19, in view of that, in verse 25 of chapter 10, the apostle says, look, Don't stop meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. You have 
the glorious privilege of assembling as God's people and in Christ, in your worship, entering into the very holy of holies in heaven itself. That's what corporate worship is. And the apostle says, don't be missing that. Don't be like some people that are avoiding gathering with the gathered church because it is inconvenient or because it means they might suffer the consequences. And he goes on in verse 26, and he explains that if we go on sinning deliberately, if Jesus has opened this door wide for us to enter into the Holy of Holies in in worship, and we just keep walking right by that door, we go on sinning deliberately, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. If you go back to the copies and to the shadows, and you reject the real thing, you will be judged for despising and trampling upon the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So why were people staying away? Well, it was dangerous. It could hurt them. They could lose their reputation, their business, their friends, their family, their physical health. They could be beaten. They could be deprived of things. They could lose their property. And so it was a massive temptation to just give a pinch of incense to the emperor or just a slice of the circumcising knife for the boys to just look like we were in a safe and accepted religion. Keep your head down. Don't call attention to yourself. Just do the things that keep the world happy and we can, we can worship Jesus in our hearts. And the apostle says you can't do that. You can't do that. That's not an option. You can't go back. There is no going back. You must keep going. You have to have faith. And faith is holding on to Christ. And faith is following Christ. Even when in the world's eyes it is the height of folly, when it's crazy, when it's a bad investment, when it is guaranteed pain and suffering, you must have faith. You must go on. What does the scripture tell us? It tells us that serving Christ, that having faith, that following Christ comes with a cost. Everyone, says the apostle, everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. Through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of heaven, says the scripture. And the question is, is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Christ when it hurts? Is it worth it to follow Christ when we lose things and health and freedom and perhaps our lives? And so the apostle launches in chapter 11 into a long list of people that live by this faith to which he is calling the people he's writing to or preaching to. There's a long list of people there in chapter 11. We read it. They were still in the shadows of the Old Testament, but they were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for the Christ. And uh, their faith brought them to great victories and through great terrible sufferings. And they fixed their faith on Christ. They waited for the Messiah. They looked to the coming of Jesus. Just one example, because there were many of them. But you look at verse 24 and 25 of chapter 11. Moses was brought up in the palace of Pharaoh. He was a prince of Egypt. He could live the life. He could do whatever he wanted and have whatever he wanted. But he refused chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth 
than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. That's what faith does. Faith takes the way that the world does their accounting and their evaluation of what's worth investing in and what's not worth investing in and turns it totally upside down and inside out. Faith leads us to hold onto things at all costs so that the world marvels at what they consider our foolishness. That's what faith does. And so the apostle saying to these Jews that he's writing to, these Christian Jews, if they were able to do that when they were still in the shadows of the Old Testament, what about you? You know the real thing. You know that Christ has come. You know that the work is done. You know that the curtain has been ripped in the temple. You know that the power of sin has been broken. You know that the victory has been secured. And you have all these witnesses. This great cloud of witnesses, their lives are preaching to you that it's worth giving up everything to follow the Messiah. Now, when we look at this, these words, we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we ought not to think of us living our lives and the saints in heaven peering down through the clouds and saying, yay, keep going, we're rooting for you here. That's not how it works. The saints in heaven have better things to do than to look down and see what's going on in our lives. They're in the presence of the Savior, and they focus on Him. So that's not the way it is. It's not in the stands where they're looking down at us. But the word witness here is the idea of someone who gives a testimony. Their lives are testimonies, just like Abel. He's dead, but his blood still speaks. And so their lives, their biographies, testify to us. And what do their lives say to us? Their lives say to us, keep on going. No matter how much it hurts, no matter how much it costs, it's worth it. Keep on going and keep on keeping on going. And there's a cloud of witnesses. Now, the word cloud here, the, the Greek has different words for cloud. There's a word for one little cloud, and there's a word for a big, huge, massive clouds, and that's the word that we have in the text here. It's not just one little cloud. There's this massive, huge mass of clouds. There's a sky full of clouds. This cloud of witnesses, the saints who have gone before us. And that's why, brothers and sisters, it's eminently edifying to read the biographies of saints. They're part of that cloud of witnesses that has gone before us and paid the price to follow Jesus. So the apostle's saying, listen, you need to endure. You need to persevere. You need to keep going. And he uses the metaphor of running a race. He says you need to run the race, look at the end of verse 1, run with endurance the race that is set before us. And how? How are we to persevere in that race? Well, we have to do that laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now, we often read this and we think that refers to those besetting sins, those, those favorite little sins that we tend to make these pet sins that we hold on to, we don't want to let go of, and that includes them. 
but it's just also just sin in general. Sin in general is this weight, this sticky, heavy thing which drags us down and slows us down as we, as we sprint, as we try to run, but then often the running is kind of hobbling, as we try to go in the direction of the heavenly city. Have you ever, in the spring or in the fall when it's really wet, have you ever walked around in, in boots in a very muddy field and the mud just accumulates and accumulates and it's really, really hard to, start to walk after a while? Well, that's what sin does. It makes it hard to keep going. And the apostle says we need to get rid of sin. Sin is what holds us back and it drags us back. And it has to do here not with certain specific sins, but with the disposition of the heart. What is holding on to us? What are we attached to in this world which is holding us back, which is holding us down? And on New Year's Eve, it's a good time for us to think about that. What are the weights and the sins which cling so closely, which are messing up my run, which are slowing down my run and making it difficult for me to persevere? We live in a world which has made pleasure into a God. And we're in this ocean, this culture which surrounds us is an ocean of people saying, look to live your life for you, for your own pleasure. And by osmosis, that seeps into our hearts, into our families, into our community. What's holding us down what's connecting us to this broken and sinful world. The, the lust, which is so common. The fear of being mocked or ridiculed if we take a stand for Christ. The need for approval from people at work or people in the community. Or perhaps we're enslaved to pornography or alcohol or to drugs or some other addictive thing, whether legal or illegal, which is just holding us down and dragging us back. And what about the fear of suffering discomfort and, and persecution and shame for Christ's sake? If I stand up, if I live for Christ, if I speak what is true, I might lose my job, I might lose money, I might lose prestige, I might lose the respect of those around me. We have to understand, brothers and sisters, that just like the Jews that the apostle was writing to were tempted to take refuge in another religion and just outwardly follow that religion so that they'll be left alone, so we too face that same temptation. We have in our time a new established religion. It is the religion, this, the religion which is expected that all Canadians and all people in the West and around the world must bow the knee to and follow. And this religion is a religion which uh, says that our identity is found in who we choose to be, what we make of ourselves. This religion is centered on our sexuality and our sexual choices, our sexual identity. It has its holy symbols. It has the rainbow flag and other holy symbols. It has the creed which must be confessed. It has its bloody sacraments of abortion and mutilating operations which seek to change people's appearance from one sex to another. We have 
uh, in our days, a, a, a new religion where man makes himself God and makes himself after his own image. And this religion has been in the works for centuries and is coming to full expression in our days. Now, back in the time of the book of the Hebrews, the Romans considered Christians dangerous people. Christians were atheists. They didn't serve the Roman gods. They were dangerous for the state because they didn't serve the Roman gods, and therefore the gods would be angry with the the Roman Empire. And Christians were often called haters of the human race. That was their crime. The general category of crime that was attributed to Christians was that they were haters of the human race. They were unnatural. They were blasphemers of the prevailing religion. And that's exactly the point to which we're getting in our culture, where our understanding of marriage and of sexual ethics and of holiness and of godliness and what family is those things are more and more seen as unnatural, hateful, bigoted, and blasphemous, and dangerous to a well-functioning and loving society. And so we're experiencing in our days a massive collision between two religions and two worldviews which are mutually incompatible. And that means, brothers and sisters, that for us today, even more for our children and yet even more for our grandchildren, the cost of following Jesus will become higher and higher. And the question that the Holy Spirit puts before us this evening is, are you ready to pay that cost? What does the scripture say? If anyone would come after me and be my disciple, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Have you counted the cost? Lot's wife was running to be saved from the judgment of God. But her heart was tied to the things of this world. She was leaving behind a lot of comfort and friends and pleasures and material goods. And she just couldn't bear it. So she stopped and she turned around. And she was destroyed. That's what happens, brothers and sisters. If our heart is tied to the things of this earth, this life, that can kill you. Many of us are already assailed by temptation. We already are heavily, heavily pressured to just give that pinch of incense to the gods of this age. Maybe it's something that happens at work, some diversity training where you're supposed to just repeat the catechism of the LGBTQ plus religion. And you don't want to lose your job. And you don't want to seem like a bigot and a hateful person who wants to seem like that. And so you're heavily pressured to recite falsehoods as if they are truths. And the devil says, well, just repeat the words. You don't have to believe them. Just repeat the words of the creed of the religion of our time. Keep your true faith safely tucked away in your heart. And just externally conform to the religious expectations of our society so you don't suffer the consequences. And the apostle says, no. 
You can't do that. You must lay aside every weight. You've got to cut those things away out of your life. You must get rid of those things which cling so closely. You must say no to sin and you must run. With endurance, you must run. With perseverance, the race set before you because God has set the course for you and you must run it. The word race here, you see it there in the end of verse 1. The word in Greek refers to an athletic contest or a struggle or a fight. And in Greek, the word is agon, and we get the English word agony. So it is a, a struggle, it is a strife, it is an agonizing, it is a great contest uh, which requires all of our energy. And some of us fight that contest, some of us run that race. When we're in a sickbed, or we're isolated at home, or when we're in the lion's den working with people who despise God and despise God's word and, and holiness. We may be running the race as we live a life of chronic pain. Or when we're fighting and, and dealing with the pain of relationships that are broken because loved ones have turned away from the Lord Jesus Christ. We may be running that race as we have to say no to a boyfriend who is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are all different ways in which we are assailed and which we are tempted and which sin tries to drag us back. But the apostle said, you've got to run the race with endurance. You've got to persevere. It's not easy, but you've got to keep going. And then when you keep going, you've got to keep on going, keeping on going, looking to Jesus. You see, that's the answer. Looking to Jesus. Because someone has run this course before us. Someone has gone through this before. Someone has walked this path before us. And it was not easy for him either. It was hard. It was crushing. It made him sweat Drops as if of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. It made him stumble under the weight of the cross. It made him cry out to his father, Oh, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. It made him weep at the graveside of his beloved friend. He suffered. It was hard. But he endured. He persevered. And he conquered, and he has overcome, and he despised the shame for the joy that is set before him. He endured the cross for the joy set before him. He kept his eye on the prize, and he got to the finish line. So Jesus is not asking you to do anything that he hasn't done. But more than that, because if that's all he was doing, if Jesus was asking us, well, I've done this, why don't you do this too? We'll say, Lord, how are we supposed to do it? You're, you're a true man, but you're also a true God. We, we can't be expected to be called to do what you have done. But then look how the apostle refers to Jesus. He is who? The founder and perfecter of our faith. We can also translate the author 
and the finisher of our faith. And it reminds us of what Paul writes to the Philippians. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He is the author of our faith. He comes into our broken, sinful, rebellious hearts. He sweetly changes us by the power of his Holy Spirit. He regenerates us. He gives us the faith as a gift, the faith that we need. That's why we believe. Not because we're so smart, not because we're better than other people, but because the Lord Jesus has had mercy on us in our unworthiness. He's the author of our faith. And he is the completer or the finisher of our faith. If we get to the finish line, not because we're so smart, not because we're so holy, not because we did the right thing, but because the power of the Spirit of God kept us going, helped us to persevere, helped us to endure, helped us to fight against sin, kept on bringing us back to the blood of Christ, the blood of the Lamb, and finally brought us across the finish line into the heavenly city. It is he who began things in our lives, he who gives us faith, he who finishes our faith by bringing us back home. And the one who does this is Jesus seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Victorious, Lord Jesus. Sovereign King Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. He is there in the presence of the Father, in eternal and infinite joy. All the pain, all the suffering, all the affliction, all the bleeding, all the being crushed, all the hurt. Nothing compared to what the last Adam now enjoys in the presence of God the Father. And he is our elder brother, Jesus. And he is home with the Father. And he is saying to us, come, my beloved brother, my beloved sister. I will bring you home with me. Run the race set before you. Keep going with endurance. Keep on keeping on going. I will bring you home through all the hurt. And the pain, and the fear, and the temptation, and all the attacks of the enemy, I will bring you to the finish line. When you will see me face to face, you will see the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then will come the day and the moment. And we, we read about it as we, as we look in verse 22. And following, then will come the day when we come to Mount Zion. We come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, that city with foundations whose builder and designer is God. When we will come to the innumerable angels and the festal gathering, the assembly of the firstborn, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, can you imagine that day? The day when all the pain is gone. When he wipes every tear from our eyes. And when we come into the new heavens and the new earth. And the angels are singing the glory of God. And we see him. We see those hands that were pierced for us. We see that side that bled for us. And our older brother welcomes us home. Glory forever. 
life forever, joy forever. Apparently, I've heard that Jewish people sometimes toast each other saying, next year, Jerusalem, with a desire to be in Jerusalem. And that's a toast that we can make as well with an even deeper meaning. Next year, Jerusalem. May next year, the year 2021, be the year in which we can sing those glorious words. The hope of faith shall not deceive us. The Savior's words are true and sure. Our friends on earth may fail and leave us, but Jesus' faithfulness endures. Who limits his dominion ever? He he rules creation from on high. All that his love and grace endeavor shall him his power not deny. That hope must soften all our sorrow. Come, fellow pilgrims, heads then high. For those who bide salvation's morrow, the hills are level, seas are dry. Oh, blessedness above all measure. Oh, joy when once all grief is banned. There is our heart. There is our treasure when we are in the promised land. Amen.